Hey, great to see everybody this morning. It's really good to uh, be able to come on a communion Sunday and to affirm our faith, and all the more as we look at God's Word, to really understand what He's saying to us. And in order to do that, we need to ask God for His help, because it's His Word and His Holy Spirit informs us of what it says. So let's ask God for His help before we turn to it. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you this morning, we truly want to thank you for your word comes from you. It is your breath. We pray for the Holy Spirit to inform our minds, but more than that, to convict our hearts of what you're saying to us so that we will always be pleasing to you and we will always be walking in Christ. And we pray for all these things. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. Now, have you ever met someone who thought that they were something but they were not, right? You know, maybe you meet someone who thinks that they're really good, but actually they're not. Or someone that they think that they're really smart, but they're not. Or someone who thinks they're really skillful, but they're not. Well, I remember going to a relative's place. Uh, unfortunately, I have all these relatives who I use illustrations from. But anyway, I went to this relative's place who thinks that they are really, really good cook. And they have this specialty, their duck dish. And they think they're really good you know, at, at cooking. Anyway, we went there, we ate this duck dish, and honestly, we couldn't tell them that it wasn't that good. Right? So we left them with the impression, or the perception that they, we left and they thought that they were still really good cooks. Now, I wonder whether you've ever met someone like that. Someone who thinks that they're really good, but actually they're really not, or they, they think they're something, but they're not. Uh, how would you describe these sort of people? I guess you describe themselves, I mean, you describe these people as uh, deceived, self-deceived or maybe deluded or blinded, where their perception of themselves doesn't connect with reality. Now today, as we look at the book of Amos chapter 5, we come across God's people uh, who are really, in a sense, deluded. They are blinded. They are self-deceived because their perception of their relationship with God is completely divorced from the reality of their relationship with God. Now, as we've been looking at the book of Amos, we saw in chapter 1, if you look up here in the slide, that God had roared like a lion in judgment. And He had brought judgment on the nations all around His people, Israel. Uh, the nations of Moab, Philistine, Syria. You remember all that? And in chapter 1, verse 3 to, six, uh, to chapter 2, verse 16, this judgment was pronounced on all the nations around God's people in Israel. But in chapter 3 to chapter 6, God pronounced judgment on Israel herself. And we saw before that God's people were particularly blinded to God's judgment because they were very deluded into thinking that God was happy with them. God was happy with them. They were secure on God because they'd been blessed by God. They were rich, they were powerful, and they had security. Now in chapter 5, uh, God continues to pronounce judgment on Israel, but He uses the creativity of Amos. As we've been seeing, Amos is a very creative writer. He's a very creative person. And here he challenges the delusion of God's people by saying that God laments. He speaks a lament to God's people in Israel. Now, lament is a bit like a funeral dirge, a funeral song. It's a type of writing, it's a type of singing. So it's almost as if chapter 5 verse 1 to 3 is actually meant to be sung like a funeral dirge. Now, you know, music is a very powerful instrument. You know, you watch movies, and when you watch movies, you don't need a caption or a little arrow to tell you, this is the goodie and this is the baddie. Right? The music 
tells you that this is a sad scene, this is a scary scene, this is an exciting scene, right? So music in itself is meant to confer to us or to convey to us the meaning of what is trying to be said here. And if you look at verse 1, it's meant to be read together with the saddest sort of music you can think of. It's like a lament, it's like a cry in a funeral. So in verse 1 it says, Hear this word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will only have a hundred left. Your town that marches out a hundred strong will only have ten left. Now if you pair this with a really sad funeral song, you're, you're meant to feel the tragedy. Well, Israel was meant to feel the tragedy of what's happening because she was just a virgin. Now, it's not meant to uh, reflect her sexual or marital status. It's meant to reflect that she was a young woman. She was a, a nation in the prime of her life. And really, it was a tragedy that she would die this way because she was so young. And what it's trying to say here is that even though Israel thinks that it is in the prime of her spiritual life before God, but yet God is seeing the future and she, he sees her imminent death and destruction. And that's why it says here in verse 2 and verse 3 that she is fallen and that people march out but only a hundred return. hundred come out and only ten return. Because God sees that in 30 years time, God will send the Assyrian Empire to come to destroy Israel. See, God's people thought they were vibrant, flourishing and healthy. But truly, in God's eyes, because of all her sins, she was already dead. Now, I know that uh, there's this recent conference uh, where this guy, Philip Jensen, was preaching, and he, and he used this illustration about cut flowers. All right, cut flowers. So I'm going uh, to steal his illustration. Well, Israel, God's people, are like cut flowers. Uh, you know cut flowers, when you cut the flowers, you buy these flowers from the uh, florist, and they, you put them in a glass and they look really nice and pretty and vibrant. They seem to be the, the most beautiful thing in the room. But the reality is because they are already cut, they are already dead, right? I mean, that's why they are cut flowers. They are dead. I mean, they're not growing in a pot. They are dead. They are cut. And even though they look so flourishing, healthy and vibrant, in a few days they'll be wilted and dead. I mean, they are already dead, but totally dead, right? Well, in the same way, this is what's happening with Israel. Even though outwardly she seems so vibrant and healthy and secure, but yet in God's eyes, she's already dead. She's already dead, as we will see, because she's not obedient to God. Now, as we hear this funeral song, just from the verse three verse, first three verses, I wonder whether we can take warning to it. Okay, When we listen to this funeral song, the, the funeral dirge, I wonder whether we should look at ourselves and ask ourselves whether there is a complacency in our own spiritual life. For many churches, the barometer or the measure of their relationship with God is their blessing. If I'm rich, God is blessing me. If I'm having good health, God is happy with me. If I am happy, it's because I have a good relationship with God. But this is not the measure of our relationship with God. 
This is absolutely not the measure of our relationship with God. The measure of our relationship with God is our personal faith and walk in Jesus Christ. It is a living and vibrant faith in Jesus Christ. Not about whether externally we are happy or we are healthy or we are rich. So I remember uh, last week I went to see my dentist who is a, a Christian and she's much older than me and she was sharing about a woman who was her good friend who had been a Christian for many years. And she was very upset with this woman because she felt that this woman who is much older, uh, now she'd been a Christian for many years, was drifting away from God. She had taken a career which meant that she was no longer with her family for many months of the year. She was chasing after career and money. She would only come to church maybe once in a while, once a month. And more importantly, she refused to get close to other Christians because she, in my dentist friend's perception, she didn't want to be challenged by other Christians. And this dentist friend said that her friend was really far, far away from God. But whenever she tried to ask her friend to come closer and come back to God, her friend said, I'm okay, I'm okay. And I wonder whether we can be like that. We, our perception of our reality with God doesn't connect with our reality. Because we think that we are right with God, but really God is angry with us and He's actually singing this funeral dirge not just for the people of Amos, but for ourselves. Because we are far away from God, but we don't realize it, and we need to wake up and come back to God. God is singing this song to you. Singing this song to you to wake you up, to make you realize that there is so much to be done in which you need to come back to faith to Jesus Christ. So in Revelation chapter 3, has a very similar idea. Revelation chapter 3 where the church in Sardis had this reputation or perception of being alive, but actually, in Jesus' eyes, they were dead. So in verse 2, Jesus says to this church, Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember therefore what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. See, this is the danger of complacency, the danger of being deluded in thinking that we are right with God when we are actually dead before God spiritually. We need to wake up. And that's what Amos was saying to his people on behalf of God. So in verse 4 to 7, God continues to call to Israel, his people, and he says in verse 4, this is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Bathsheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire and it will devour them and Bethel will have no one to quench it. So after the lament or the funeral song, the sad, sad song that God sings of the destruction of His people, He says, look, it's not too late. Seek me, come back to me. But the shocking thing is, seeking God did not take the form of going to their places of worship and doing their religious rituals. 
So, if you look here, he says, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, do not go to Gilgal. Now, if you look at this map up here, uh, we, we see this map so often, hopefully by the end of it you can remember the map of Israel. Bethel was here, and Gilgal was possibly here or here, we're not sure archaeologically, but these were the religious centers for God's people in Israel. Now we know when we look back in chapter 4 that unfortunately there were also places of corrupt worship where they were worshipping God in an ungodly way. Okay, so in chapter 4, remember last week uh, when Y was preaching, God said, go to Bil- the Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Right? Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years and so on and so forth. But he's not just saying go to Bethel and go to Gilgal, but look at what it says there in verse 5. Do not journey to Bathsheba. Now Bathsheba, interestingly enough, if you look at the next slide, is actually down here in Judah. You see Judah? So Bathsheba was actually not part of the northern kingdom, but part of the southern kingdom, and people were probably making their religious pilgrimages to go to Bathsheba. The reason was because Bathsheba was a, a, a very... Uh, I guess a place of great historical and religious significance. Uh, Abraham, the father of Israel, Isaac, Jacob, all these people had had a religious experience or they met God in some way at Bathsheba. God had appeared to them in Bathsheba or God had spoken to them or done something significant in their lives in Bathsheba. So in Genesis chapter 21, the first time, right? So that place was called Bathsheba, because the two men swore an oath there, and after the treaty had been made at Bathsheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a, t- a tamarisk tree in Bathsheba, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham sta- stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. So what is really being criticized here by God is not so much the corrupt worship that was taking place in Bethel or Gilgal. As far as we know, that wasn't happening in Bathsheba. But I think what God was really criticizing God's people for was that they were attempting to find God in religious places and religious rituals. Right? They were going their religious pilgrimages to Bathsheba, they were going to Bethel, and they were going to Gilgal. But God is not pleased just because I go to a religious place or I do a religious ritual. See, I think many uh, many people seem to be mistaken in thinking that all I have to do to be right with God is to go to church or I have to do this religious ritual. Uh, I've shared with you another one of my relatives, <laughs> my uncle in Switzerland, who I've shared with you, I'm sure you've prayed for him in the past, the one who recovered from cancer in his throat. I've been sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with him for years. And one of his most common answers to me is, I'm okay because when I feel the mood, I will wander into any church near my house in Switzerland and I'll pray to God and then I'll feel better. Now, do you think that that makes him right before God just because he wanders into a church whenever he feels like it? doesn't matter what sort of church, and just prays for a little while and then steps out. I have another uh, relative who is very strict 
and going to church every Sunday. And every Easter and every Christmas, he will attend the special services. But yet, in his life, if you were to ask me, do I see any other sign of being a born-again Christian? There is nothing there. I don't think that on the last day when Jesus Christ comes again, if we appear before Jesus and we say to him, oh, you know, I go to church every Sunday, or I go to church on Easter or Christmas, therefore I'm right with God, I don't think that's going to hold much water with Jesus Christ. Because that is putting your faith in Jesus just in a religious place or religious ritual. See, in the end, that's not Christianity. That is uh, churchianity. Right, have you heard? It's not Christianity, a relationship with Jesus Christ, a, a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. It is just churchianity. I go to church and therefore I'm right with God. It's like those people who go to church late and leave early and they think that, okay, I'm right with God for the rest of the week. But God wants so much more than that, isn't it? God is not just happy with that one hour or two hours that you go to church and then the rest of the week you live your life normally. So anyway, because of my thing with pie charts now. Okay, so I've got this pie chart idea, right? So imagine this is your life. Okay, uh, obviously I cut this from the internet. So imagine like, okay, this is all the different parts of your life. Your family life, your sporting life, your sleeping, work life, study life, okay? Next slide. So imagine this is your, the time that you come to church. I don't know. I have, I calculated we have 168 hours a week. So for three hours, I don't know approximately how many percentage of that, you give to God when you come in public worship to church or to, you know, some sort of religious thing. And the rest of your time, you, you live as if God does not exist. You live as if you have no relationship with Jesus Christ at all. Is that the sort of worship that God wants from us? Is that what pleases God? Is that what it constitutes a living relationship and a walk with Jesus Christ? No. God is not pleased and God was not pleased with the people of Amos' time because that's all they were giving to him. They were giving him just their public worship, going to the temple or going to Bathsheba and then for the rest of the year, they were living life as if it didn't matter in terms of their relationship to God. So in verse 7 and in verse 13, 10 to 13, God condemns and judges God's people in Israel for what they've done. Now before we look at verse 7 and 10 to 13, it would be helpful to look at the structure of uh, chapter 5, verse 1 to 17, right? Because you can sort of see why I'm doing this way. Now, I told you that Amos is a very creative sort of fellow, right? He's got a very creative uh, bent. And I think that many commentators, and I agree with them, actually say that the way that verse 1 to 17 is structured is like a hamburger. Now, if you look at it, you can, if you have a Bible, but not your church Bible, uh, you can actually use highlighters and you can structure it. And when you structure it with a highlighter, you'll see that it actually comes out this way. So the first part, and the, okay, that's why it's hamburger, because you see, that's the bun, right? It's brown color. Okay? The, the end, the buns, are the lament, where uh, God laments over Israel and the future of what's going to happen to Israel. So at the end there, the lament is, he, all the people will be wailing, right? The farmers wailing, the city people wailing. 
Okay, then the next uh, level, obviously you don't have cheese at the bottom, but this is a super burger. Okay, so this is the cheese part, is the appeal. Okay, so he appeals back to his people to come back to him, to seek God, to seek good, seek what is right. And then you have the lettuce, which is the green part, which is the accusation part. And then you have the meat part. Okay, I like my hamburger raw. I like my hamburger raw. So the, 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 the middle part, the meat, is the hymn about God. So if you look at the accusation or the, the, the judgment on Israel, look at what God says in verse 7 and verse 10 to 13. This is what they do with the rest of their time outside their three hours in temple, okay? Verse 7. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. And then verse 10. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions and you will, you will not live in them, though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your sins, are your offenses, and how great are your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Okay, now if you look at this passage, you see that God is very, very upset with them because for the rest of their time, the time which they are not engaged in their public worship, they are basically sinning and offending and transgressing against God. There is no acknowledgement of God or obedience of God or worship of God outside of their time in their public worship. In verse 7, the first thing they do, which is an outline if you can see, is they revel in unrighteousness. Right? There's great injustice, injustice. Sorry, It says there that there are those who turn justice into bitterness. Now, for those of you who have uh, different translations, it might say those who turn justice into wormwood. The, the bitterness here is a herb, wormwood, which is like a poison, which is really bitter where when you eat it, it makes you feel really ill. Now, justice uh, is sometimes called sweet justice. You know when you get justice, it's a sweet feeling. Now, I remember uh, once when I was living in Australia, I got my car stolen. It was uh, four weeks before my wedding, which was a bit inconvenient. And uh, six months after uh, I got married, the police called me up. And they said, hey, you know, it's your car number. I can't remember what the car number is now. Uh, this car. And uh, I went to the car. And when I looked at the car, it didn't look my car, like my car at all because it had been completely transformed to look like another car. So the color was different. The license plate was different. Everything was changed. But then I realized that it was my car because the radio code was the same. And I, I remember I had some juvenile friends at that time who sprayed Coca-Cola on my ceiling on my car, which is, I don't know how they did that, but the mark was still there because they hadn't cleaned it. So I managed to take my car home after that. And I felt really pleased that I got my car back, that the justice was won and they caught the thieves. But here, instead of having sweet justice in God's, among God's people on the land, they were turning justice into bitterness. Instead of getting justice, people were not getting justice, but they were actually feeling bitterness 
and poison whenever they sought justice instead. And God's people here cast righteousness to the ground. Literally, is like to an image of throwing something to the ground to break it. You know, you get a plate or a cup, and you throw it on the ground and you break it. That's what they were doing. They were hurling God's righteousness to the ground and breaking it. So God's people, and the rest of their time, were not doing what was right, but what was evil. They loved unrighteousness. That's why in verse 10 it says, There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. The second thing they were doing was they were oppressive because of their love of money. So it says there in verse 1, You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain, or in the earlier translations, you trample on the poor. And why do they do that? Because they wanted to build their stone mansions and their lush vineyards. Now in the olden days, uh, people used to live in buildings made of straw bricks. Do you remember when the Israelites were in Israel? Oh, sorry, the Israelites were in Egypt. Remember what did Pharaoh make them do? He made them make straw bricks, right? And with the straw bricks, they would build their houses. So for people to live in stone mansions, that's really opulent, you know, because you've got to go to the quarry, you've got to dig out the stones, you've got to transport the stones to your place, and you've got to cut the stones and then build your beautiful house. But here these people were living in their stone houses, sorry, their stone mansions, and they had these vineyards, but they still didn't have enough. They still wanted to exploit the poor and extract more and more for the love of money. The third thing that they did wrong, apart from being hating righteousness and being oppressive and the love of money, was that their sin was habitual and entrenched. Notice how it says here in verse 12, For I know how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. Now these things are two separate things. They sin very often and they sin with greater and greater magnitude. The consistency and the degree of their sin was getting worse and worse. They were sinning more and more often and worse and worse. Now I always remember what my boss who was a financial controller, told me in my last job before I became a pastor. He said, there are only two ways to get my attention. You make lots of small mistakes, or you make one very big mistake. And Israel were doing both, right? They were making lots and lots of small mistakes, and doing more and more big mistakes. And worst of all, they were not repentant of their sin. See, in verse 13 it says, Therefore the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. See, why do the prudent keep quiet in such times for the times are evil? Because there was no point in re- rebuking or correcting the sins of the people because they were not willing to listen. See, the times were so bad that there was rampant sin, but this sin was not being repented of. People, There was no point in people speaking up because people were so entrenched in their sin. Now, I wonder what on the situation here, whether it's like us. Uh, are we, the rest of the time, we are sinning more and more and more, and we are unrepentant of our sin. We, we have, we've gone far away from God, but we do not want to come back. I was reading this book uh, this week called The Battles That Christians Face. Actually, I gave it to all the last consistory members. I hope... They read it too. 
But it says that sin is a progressive thing. Satan doesn't work from getting you from A to Z straight away, right? Uh, he, he doesn't get a person to end up step, right, to, to commit adultery. It, it's a series of steps, and, and Satan is just moving you from one step to the next step to the next step to the next step. So it's a progressive thing. You're sinning more and more and more. And also, it is, a, 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 I guess, a tactic of uh, our sinful nature and Satan as well, where as we sin more and more and more, we are less likely to uh, acknowledge that sin. We are more willing to diminish that sin. So I remember sometimes when I speak to people and they have some problem with some sin, and I ask them, how often do you commit this sin? And sometimes people will say, oh, not very often. More than than once people have said that to me, not very often. If I say to you, I don't sin very often, not very often, uh, what is the frequency in your mind? Once a month? Once every couple of months? But for some people, when they say not very often, they mean once every couple of days. But when people say that, and I realize that they're not very often, especially once every couple of days, it already shows that you're rationalizing and you're diminishing that sin in your mind. And I think that was what was happening here, isn't it? People were sinning more and more and worse and worse, but they're not willing to repent. They were diminishing and not taking responsibility for their sin. They're not coming back to God. Well, again, God says to them, if they do not turn back to Him, then, like we saw at the very end of this section, God will continue to bring His judgment and they will they will all be judged for it. So in verse 14, uh, we come again. Next slide. Okay, uh, we won't come to that yet. Sorry. In verse 14, it says, this is the other side of the uh, burger, right? Verse 14, Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say He is. See, they think that the Lord God Almighty is with them, but He's not, right? But in order for God to come back to them, they must hate evil, it says there in verse 15, and love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. See, what God is saying here very clearly is because He is God, because of their relationship with Him, they must transfer that worship and allegiance in everything that they do. They must hate evil and love good. They must seek good and not evil. If you want to seek God, you must seek good in everything that you do. And that's why I I came to that pie chart picture, right? Because people think that, okay, I I come to church on Sunday and uh, at church I will learn about the the death, the forgiveness, the resurrection of Jesus and I will acknowledge Him as my Lord and Savior. But that only happens in the three hours on a Sunday. And that place of worship during my time of religious rituals, whatever, but for the rest of the hundreds, uh, it's 103 hours minus, 165 hours a week, Jesus is not Lord over my life. His death and resurrection have no influence in the things that I do. But God is not happy with this. In fact, God is very angry with this and God is mocked when we live our lives this way. But in fact, what God, God is saying here, next slide, 
is that just as we acknowledge Jesus as our Lord and Savior here on a Sunday, He must be acknowledged in everything that we do the rest of the time. And that's why, uh, if you look at, next slide, some of the things that Jesus says, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this is exactly what Amos is saying here. Amos was telling them, that to seek God was not to seek God in Bethel or Gilgal or Bathsheba and fulfill their religious rituals in their religious places, but to seek God and to seek good in everything that they did, in their courts, in relating to the poor, in doing righteousness, in their society, and, and in all of life. And I think that that's so consistent in the way that we must live as Christians. Jesus died not so that we can come worship Him just on a Sunday, publicly and corporately, but in all of our lives. And in fact, in the middle section, in the if you look at the hamburger slide again, why does God tell us about Himself right in the middle of this section? Why does He tell us about Himself that is so important, right? Because obviously it, it sort of interrupts the flow of what He's trying to say. Well, if you look with me to verse 8 and 9, you see that the things that are used to describe God really shows that God will not be mocked by thinking that just because we go to a religious place or do a religious thing that He is happy with us. So in verse 8, God is described in this way. He who made the Pleiades and the Orion, uh, these are star uh, systems, He who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, he who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. See, what is God like? Well, God is powerful. He makes the star systems. He controls the day and the night. He controls the seasons. He controls the waters of the sea. He sustains the world. The Lord is His name. But verse 9 also tells us that He is a judging God. He's a God who sees the hearts of man and judges them. And therefore, God cannot be mocked into thinking that, well, you know, just because I do something for you for three hours a week and I live for myself the rest of the time, that somehow you're pleased with me. No. God demands that we live all of our life for Him because that is the nature of our relationship with God. How more for us as Christians? Because Jesus has died for us, He has given His life as a substitute for us, He has risen to give us eternal life, we must give all of our lives to Him. We must truly be born again and transformed by the Holy Spirit. We must have a vibrant personal relationship with Jesus. In the Old Testament, the word worship literally means to bow down before God. That's what worship means, to bow down. To bow down before God is not just to bow down before God on a Sunday morning, but to bow down before Him in everything that we do. You see, there is no, there is no 
benefit to God that we come to church on a Sunday morning? Right? Do, do, do we, does it benefit God? I mean, do we give Him something that He doesn't have? No. When we come here on a Sunday morning, we are actually giving Him His worth, right? We are worshipping Him. That's what worship is, giving Him His worth. All the more we give Him His worth in everything that we do, we bow down before Him in everything that we do. Unfortunately, there are many Christians who do not do that. They only give to Him the Sunday morning. And yet they think that they're right with Him, but actually, I'm pretty sure that based on this passage, God is not happy with them. A church member was telling me of a woman at work, one of his uh, bosses, who was very active at church, but on Sundays, sorry, on Sundays, but on the weekdays, is very abusive in the office and shouts and swears at people, so much so that everybody avoids her. Do you think God is pleased with that? Do you think that represents a person who's walking in Christ? In the same way, someone else was telling me, this is not my son, by the way, uh, that in the national service, there are many people who call themselves Christians as well. Uh, then they lie and they swear and they avoid responsibility and blame others. Do you think that this is the sort of person who is having a close and vibrant walk in Jesus Christ, who is really worshipping God of his life? This is churchianity, right? Not Christianity. It is a faith in the ritualistic and the formality. But that's not what Christianity is about. I think that my last comment would be that increasingly, in many churches that we go to, it forces this idea that God is basically here to make me feel good about myself. Uh, technically, it's called uh, therapeutic Christianity. It is the church like the counseling session. We come to church to feel good about ourselves. Uh, there was an illustration that I read somewhere where a pastor was rebuked for using the word sin in church. And, he said, and uh, someone said, what, instead of saying sin, why don't you just say that we are failing to meet our potential? Right. Now, church is not about therapy or making ourselves feel good. It's about coming and meeting God and God's word and singing and encouraging each other. As we come to church, we remind ourselves who our God is so that in the rest of the week, we live our lives truly giving of ourselves in our relationship with God and reflecting Jesus as Lord and Savior in our life. Now, I think that one of the characteristics of therapeutic Christianity that I've noticed when I go to these churches is that we always sing songs, happy songs, really happy songs, reflecting about how God wants to bless us, how God wants to give us all these things, that God is, you know, that I love God, God loves me thing, right? But I think that today, as we look at Amos chapter 5, is really a lament and a lament is a song of sadness because of judgment that's coming. But it's also at the same time, it's not always bad to be sad, right? I mean, some of you like watching sad romantic movies. Okay, I, I realize some of you do that. But there is good things about being sad sometimes because when you see sad things, it makes you wake up and realize that actually I need to change. So I thought that today uh, I'll find a sad song for us and we'll sing it as part of our conclusion. A song about God's judgment sung in a sad way but in a way that reminds us that God is a judging God. Look at what it says there. The God is the one with a blinding flash who destroys the stronghold in verse 9 and brings the fortified city to ruin. So if God is a judging God, then at the same time, we can give thanks for our salvation, but at the same time, take heed of the warning of Amos chapter 5 and ask ourselves, during the rest of the week, are we really living our lives 
obedient to God and obedient to Jesus as our Lord and Savior.